Amen. Thank you so much, Nicole, uh, when she sent that. And we were trying to figure out what was our response going to be. And once we saw it, we was like, man, that's our response. Essentially, uh, what she said, man, is this, this is it's not the entire reason why we exist, but this is a major part why we exist, because we refuse to be silent because the God that we serve is a God who is concerned about justice and about those people who are hurting and those who are oppressed. And so um, that is one church that is uh, a major part of who we are, what God called us to. So uh, thank you so much, Nicole, for that. Um, so uh, let us pray one more time, um, and then we're going to dive into the message for today. Um, God, we can do nothing without you. So we await your coming. May your spirit permeate throughout this place, Lord, that we have transformed into a house of worship. And God, may you break all of our hearts. God, that we are prepared and ready for what you want to do in and through us. Now, Lord, for this, this time where we open up your word, God, I pray. First and foremost, God, that you hide me behind Calvary's cross, that the people may see more and more of you and less of me. And God, may you speak to each and every one of us, Lord, no matter what role we play, that we all leave from here this day changed. Now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, God, may it be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. And it is in your name that we do humbly pray. Let every heart say amen. 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 Thank you guys so much. Uh, today we dive into the second installment of our series that we are calling Mission. Uh, essentially, we're going to be in, unpacking our mission statement over the next few weeks, uh, the mission statement of One Church. So let's kind of dive right in. I, I want to, you know, I, I like to make you guys participate. And so, uh, so I, I want to hear your voices uh, as we kind of read together what is the vision and the mission of One Church. And so uh, first, let's, let's go through our vision. So if you can put that up, and I'd like for us to uh, read it together. And, I, and I'll tell you how everything connects in a moment. So uh, the vision of one church is, read, one church. Amen, amen. One church will transform our community as we become more like Jesus. The vision then leads to the mission statement, which is what we're walking through over the next few weeks. So uh, let us now read the mission statement together. Ready? We will Amen. Thank you guys so much. Give yourselves a hand for Yeah. I like the slow golf claps. Y'all y'all really good at those. All right, so here's, here's how this works in practice. Uh, the vision basically is exactly what it says. It's the picture that you have for what something is going to be. So the vision that we have, the picture in our minds regarding One Church is that we believe that One Church, as we become more like Jesus, will be a transforming community. We will transform 
form people. We will see change. That's the vision in our minds, which means that we don't just gather just for the sake of gathering. We gather because we have a need and a desire to be agents of reconciliation and change. Amen? Amen. So the vision is the picture of what we hope to become. The mission then is the roadmap or the building blocks to which we hope to work and see that vision come to pass. And so we say that in order for us to become agents of change and transformation, what we need to do then is first and foremost, we've got to explore who Jesus is. Yeah, that's the first step. We've got to explore. We've got to learn more about Jesus, not more about ourselves, not more about social issues, not more about anything. It begins first and foremost with learning more about Jesus. Jesus is the only one who changes. That's why he says himself, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. We explore Jesus, but check this out. Here's what this looks like in practice. When you explore who Jesus is, what happens is, you've heard the old saying, um, uh, uh, hate the sin and love the sinner. You've heard that before? Yeah. Here's what exploring Jesus looks like when you explore who Jesus is as agents of transformation. No, no, it's not about hate the sin, love the sinner. It's about hate my sin and love my Savior. Yeah, because when you're exploring who Jesus is, one of the first things you do is you find yourself uh, transparent before the Savior. You find yourself in place of him, in a position of him where you can't help but to look at yourself and I can't be concerned about you because now that I'm in front of perfection itself, I recognize that I've got to change. And I'm telling you, man, when you explore who Jesus is, when you learn more about yourself and more about your Savior, you'll find yourself, we'll find ourselves a little less judgmental. Yeah, because I don't have time to worry about you. I recognize I've got my own struggles. I've got my own sin that I'm working through. So I got to I got to hate my sin and love my Savior. We explore who Jesus is. Then we experience God through worship. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we also experience life together through community. We've got to learn how to live together, how to be side by side, how how to be in true, authentic fellowship together. Transformation comes, man, by being side by side together. Brief marking, little little caveat here. Next next Sunday, we need you to be here, and um, we need you to be here on time. Okay? (laughs) I know, that's, that's like revolutionary for one church. We need... We need you to be here on time. You're not going to want to be late next week. I'm telling you, because next week we are going to practice what life together and community looks like. You need to be here, not at 1030. You need to be here at 1025. Just saying. Just saying, man, we're going to experience it life together in community. And lastly, we engage the community around us, which means that we've got to be a church without walls who gets out like we did last night at 12-12, loving on people, connecting with people, praying for people, serving our neighbors. That is the mission of one church. And we believe that God has placed it in the heart of not Matt and I, but each and every one of us that we can be agents of transformation if we explore, experience, and engage. But today, today, our focus is on experiencing God through worship. I want you to recognize the intentional language that we use here. We said that we believe that as 
we look for God to transform our community, the thing that is paramount, one of the things that's paramount is that we experience God through worship. Here's what we believe. We believe that Sunday gatherings are a big deal, yeah. a very big deal. We believe that this is, this is, this is, this is where life change happens. So what you may not know is that bi-weekly, man, a group of us get together, and we don't just make up what we do on Sundays, man. We spend time praying, arguing. There's tension trying to figure out what are we going to present to the people so that each and every one of us can have a life-changing experience with God. In fact, if you read uh, the document in which we use as we're planning our worship services, our mission as the worship planning team is to create an environment where people will experience life change yeah to create an environment where you and I can meet the Savior when you meet the Savior your life is forever changed now note what I didn't say I said that we could create an environment where life change happens we did not say that we'll create an environment where we tell you what to do yeah yeah that's not the environment we're not we're not telling you what to do uh, we, we talk about this uh, all the time. Matt and I, as we travel, and people are asking us about one church and how it happens. One of the first questions they ask us is, what about worship? We say, man, worship, worship's pretty good now. But it was so weird when we first started. <laughs> oh, it was so weird. I remember, some of you may remember, when we were back at the elementary school, and as we were trying to figure out what was worship going to look like for one church, what we told the worship team, the worship leader, Scooby, is we said, first and foremost, we got to find a one church sound. But also in that if we are truly going to be a diverse body, then what we cannot do is tell people how to connect with God. We got to give people the space to connect with God the way that they know how to. And so it's so strange what you may not know. We used to stand in the back of the gym at the elementary school and laugh at you. <laughs> we did. We used to giggle Sunday after Sunday because some of you, man, were struggling to find your rhythm. Man, you, killed, you was clapping on the one and the four, just... I don't know where that second clap came from. Just, oh, man, it was rough. It was rough. Man, some of you are very expressive in your worship, and you were scary some of the people who are not so expressive. And so it was funny seeing people jump because they were experiencing a, a loud expression of worship. Some of you loved the hum. People didn't know if I should clap, should not clap. Do I stand? Do I sit down? And what we did is said, we're not telling you anything. Because however you connect with God is how you connect with God. Clap, sing, stand, moan, wave your hands, stand up, sit down, rock, whatever you do that allows you to connect with your Savior. The most important thing is this, not that we tell you how to do it, it's just that you do it. And what we work hard to do is to provide a space where you can connect. That's our only hope. We want you to connect. We want you to experience God through worship, experience the life change when his Holy Spirit moves through a space and each and every one of us has a connection with our God. Man, 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 we experience God through worship. One of the things within that that I'd like to share with you, what helps us to think about this, and let me re read our scripture for today before I go too quick. I forgot about that part, right? All right, so... Uh, if you have your Bibles, man, open them up to uh, Psalm 103. And, of course, as always, it'll be available for you on the screen. Uh, I know we try to move quickly, but we're going to read it in its entirety today, which is 22 verses. Um, so if it's okay. Uh, and we'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And um, listen to the words of the psalmist. Beginning of verse 1, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Thank you, Lord. I always have to stop right there. Thank you, Jesus. Um, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen, amen. One of the first things, man, that we note when we're reading uh, the, the writer that psalm there is in the first few verses, we recognize that worship is a personal thing. Somebody say, a personal thing. It's a personal thing. Listen to what he says in some of those first couple of verses. He says, bless the Lord on my soul and all that's within me. Bless his holy name and forget not all his benefits. Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The psalmist begins basically with this emphatic call for us, for each and every one of us to bless the Lord. But the reality is, is that this emphatic call at this stage within his writing isn't necessarily about your neighbor. The psalmist is talking to himself. That's why he says, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And he uses, check this out, he uses the singular pronouns to identify that he's talking to himself. And I, and I love this. I love this because not only is it emphatic, but it's also pointing to the reality that it's extensive. So he says, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. All that's within me. So when the psalmist is saying is that, it takes everything of him to bless God. When he thinks about what the Lord has done, everything in him is required to bless the Lord. So he blesses the Lord with his intellect. He blesses the Lord with his emotion. He blesses the Lord with his heart, with his lungs, with his tongue, with his mouth, with everything that is him. He blesses the Lord. I like that. I like that a whole lot, man. I like the fact that he's saying, I got to bless the Lord with everything that I have. I'll tell you what I don't like. 
I don't like mindless worship. Yeah, where, we, where you don't take time to think about the Lord, that, that you just come and just, just randomly observe and, and, and take what, what's been given out. I don't, I don't like mindless worship. I think that it requires some level of intellect in order for you to truly worship the Lord. I hear your questions. What does it mean to worship the Lord with my mind, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. I got an answer for you. <laughs> to worship the Lord with your mind basically suggests that you spend time thinking about what the Lord has done. That's all it requires. That you pause for a moment in your days and you think about what God has been doing in your life. Man, I, I saw this perfectly just the other week. My family and I, we were up at Lake Michigan. And I always get caught up when I'm in nature. It's, I think it's my old age. Because there were times where I just didn't do it. But as I get older, I've begun to appreciate nature a whole lot more. Dave Nesberg, who is the executive director of the camp where we're at, he always says this line to me, and it breaks me every time. He says, you go to church every Sunday, man, to hear the word preached. He says, but you come out here to nature and watch the Lord preach to you. I'm up on Lake Michigan, man, and we're out and looking at the vastness of the sea and not being able to see the other side and yet seeing the horizon, man. I saw that and I was reminded of a song by India Irene. She says that when she saw the sea, the ocean for the first time, her words was, that's how I know that God is real. Man, when you experience nature, I saw the horizon, I got caught up and I just got to thinking about, man, my creator, my creator simply spoke a word. And when he looked into nothingness, he saw the need for water, and he told that huge, massive lake that we were on, he says, hey, listen, I need you to spread this far, but right now I need you to stop. Ooh. I think about, man, how great and awesome my God is. you got to worship God intellectually and know that what has happened and what is happening in nature and creation isn't by happenstance. I don't care what they say. They can't prove it no more than you and I can. The Lord spoke his words, and he made everything into existence. And with my mind, with your mind, you worship the Lord with your intellect. Yeah, bless the Lord with all that's within me. I don't like mindless worship, but I'm going to have to be honest again. I don't like heartless worship either. Because I believe at some point in time, when you know the Lord for who he is, that at some point in time, who he is ought to make you feel some kind of way. I mean, you just ought to feel it. And, and I ain't saying that that makes you shout. I told you, we ain't going to tell you how to feel it. I'm just trying to tell you that you ought to feel some kind of way. Can I prove my point? It's in the scripture. Check this out. David, David, as he's writing this, he says, uh, because uh, God is so great, he says, check this out. This is, this is what makes you feel. He says, don't forget his benefits. Yeah, don't forget his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Yeah, I can just stop right there, man. Just the fact that the Lord forgives all of our iniquities enough to make me feel some kind of way. Because I know who I am. You don't know all of me. I know all of me. And based on the reality and the fact that I know me and the fact that a great God would forgive me, oh, man, that makes me feel all warm and mushy on the inside. But also he says that he heals your diseases. Oh, man, I knew we'd get quiet on that one. I knew we'd get quiet on that one. Here's the reality, man. When David is writing here, he is not writing metaphorically. 
Because whether or not you know it, the God who healed back in the olden days is still healing today. And so David, check this out, David in his story never needed a physical healing from God. But in his words, what he's doing is testifying to people that I believe I've seen and I've witnessed the Lord healing. So I worship and bless him with all that I am because the God that I serve still heals. And there's some of you who are in here today who need to know that the Lord still heals. That the infirmity that you're experiencing, the pain, the depression, the anxiety that's going on inside of your life, that does not have to be for your detriment. That the Lord can touch you, he can heal you, and he can change you. And that's enough not to bless him after. I'll bless him right now. Not only does he heal our infirmities, but also, check this out, he says, who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Brothers and sisters, he is the God of another chance. Am am I feeling a little excited about that? He's the God of another chance. His love extends so far. His grace and mercy has no limit. When hell was going to be our home, he pulled us up out of the pit and he redeemed us for all eternity. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, that makes me feel some kind of way. And I ain't saying you got to shout like Tammy and I ain't saying you got to stick a hand in the air. All I'm saying is that in some place within the depths of your soul, you ought to feel some kind of way about that yeah man worship man it's a personal thing David David is making this argument because he's want to let you know that when you come into the place where the people gather first it begins with a personal confession a personal ethic that you know what the Lord has done for you that you recognize that the change that's happened in your life isn't by your own means by your own methods but the Lord has been working things for you it's a personal thing Worship is a personal thing, but check this out. Although worship is personal, it's not private. It's not private. Worship is personal, but it's not private. We notice by the second part of this scripture, worship is not, it's personal, not private, but worship is a communal thing. Yeah, I like this a lot, man. It's a communal thing. There's something special when the saints gather together. Man. I don't like taking weeks off if I can't have this. This heals me week after week. There's something about, man, when I experience your hugs, when when I hear your testimonies, when I see you singing and praising and we spend time locking arms and we're looking to the master, there's something special about that. When we bring our stories, because that's what happened to all of us, as a personal reference, we bring our stories to the table, but then collectively we come together, man, and we bless the Lord together. But I want you to notice something. In verse 6, he starts off with this collective statement saying, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. I kept asking myself, as I've been preparing for this now for a couple of weeks, Lord, why did you start the collective part of this about justice for the oppressed? And I was just going to brush right over it until I woke up yesterday. Until I woke up yesterday 
And for the remainder of my day, I spent an enormous amount of time watching the television and observing the events that took place in Charlottesville. And I said, Lord, you had a plan when you spoke this into my heart that you knew Charlottesville was going to happen. And that the people of God need to know that when we gather, one of the things that's important is that if the community is not okay, we are not okay, and we cannot worship the Lord authentically, genuinely, if we are not doing so, and hurting for the oppressed who need justice. Oh, man, there's something. There's something special when the community comes together. But when the community comes together, one of the principles of community is this. If one person within the community is not okay, the community is not okay. And because there are people whom we don't know by name, but because, you've seen it. You've seen it. Seen. In 2017, droves of people marching with torches. This is 2017, not 1917. In 2017, droves of people marching with torches, slanging racial slurs, anti-Semitic and xenophobic epithets at people, and the violence that ensued. Check this out. This is what really broke my heart. At college students. Man, we, 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 we are gathered here, man. We sit adjacent to the main campus of the University of Louisville, and, and I'm thinking about that there, there, there are kids that we minister to on a regular basis who could easily be subjected to what they're experiencing in Charlottesville right now. And in my mind, I couldn't reconcile how is it possible that in 2017 we are still here. We are still here. It broke my heart that there was so much hate in an individual that they sat for minutes in a vehicle for minutes, witnesses say. He sat for minutes in his vehicle and allowed the crowd to get in front of him before he took off 55 miles an hour, running over crowds of people. And when he crashed into the other car, he backed up over them again. In 2017, God is concerned about justice and that people in our world are hurting and that change needs to happen in our community. And if we only gather here on Sundays to clap our hands and sing some songs to make ourselves feel better and we are not concerned about people hurting, here is my position. Let's close up shop today and give up. Because if our heart doesn't break, man, for the brokenness in our world, what's the point? What's the point? God is concerned about people, and so should we. And if you are not okay, I am not okay. And if those students and those people who are hurting in Charlotte, that 32-year-old woman who lost her life, those two first responders who died, if they're not okay, this has to be more than us just coming together and making ourselves feel better, singing songs to ourselves and leaving here, and this becomes idol worship. 
We can't worship the moments. We can't worship the songs. We can't worship the leaders. We come to worship the God. And when you worship the God, for what breaks his heart, breaks your heart. And clearly what David says is that the Lord works righteousness, which means that he is working for those people in Charlottesville. He is working for the refugees who are experiencing pain. He's working for those who are experiencing sex trafficking. He is working for people who are oppressed in our world. And because he is working, the expectation is that you and I do the same thing. And I refuse, Matt and I refuse, we refuse to be a church that remains silent about injustice in our world. And we will die on this platform before we change our attitude about it. Nicole is absolutely correct. If this means that we will lose people, which we already have, a lot of people, because they didn't like this stance, then so be it. Because as citizens of God's kingdom, I've got to be more concerned about making sure that I'm aligned with him than colluding with any side of any political structure. This is not political. This is gospel. This is kingdom. And we are citizens of the kingdom. And within the kingdom, there is no room for hate, for white supremacy, for the evil deeds that occur. There's no room in the kingdom of God for those things. And check this out. In the midst of all that, I'm still within my scripture. I promise you I am. I promise you I am. Listen to what David says. David says this, he says, he says, um, he says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us for our iniquities. He's talking about the community there. Notice in the first section, verses one through five, he used singular pronouns, you and your. But when you move to the second portion, verses 6 to 14, he uses plural pronouns, basically us, our, those, and then nouns like them and people. I'm sorry, people and, um, nope. <laughs> Think of it in a second. But what he's speaking to is about the importance of the community. So check this out. Individually, by ourselves, we recognize our pain. We recognize that the Lord forgives, that the Lord, that the Lord does work on our behalf. But we come here collectively, and this is what happened. I cannot sit next to you week after week. I can't eat dinner at your tables. I can't, I can't experience your family. I can't visit you in a hospital. I can't sit down for years now over lunches and coffees with Matt, and I cannot hate him or you because of that connection. It is literally impossible to hate someone when you are an authentic community together. It is impossible. Because when I sit with you, I begin to feel you. And when I begin to feel you, I understand your story. I understand your pain. And I recognize that the only difference between you and I is about a couple of inches thick of flesh. But at the end of the day, man, we are all sinners. 
who have been saved by a Savior. We are all sinners who have been forgiven. At the end of the day, we are all the same. Dr. Howard Thurman said it like this, hate often begins in a situation in which there is conflict or contact without fellowship. Contact that is devoid of any primary overtures of warmth and fellow feeling and genuineness. We come together and we experience the fellow feelings of each other. And, and, and my wife and I, we talk about it all the time. I've shared with her every time that I want to muster up enough strength to get angry. And it seems like hate rises up. Man, one of my vanilla brothers and sisters sends me the sweetest message. Every time. The sweetest act comes from someone who doesn't look like me. And at that point, what I recognize is God is trying to tell me that the worst thing that you can do in response to hate is to hate. But that perfect love is what we explore and what we experienced. Man, community. Community is where it exists. We come together and we feel each other. That's why this has got to be deeper than just an experiment that we are doing. We've got to do life together. It's got to be us. It's got to be our. It's got to be people. It's got to be us together. We've got to lock arms together, love each other, sit at tables, love, live together. It's got to be more than just a Sunday morning experience. Because worship is communal. It's, it's personal, but it's communal. And if it's not communal, it is not worship. It is not worship. This idea that it's about ourselves and ourselves alone, that is antithetical to Scripture. It's supposed to be about the collective. About the collective. And I got to move on because at this point I'm getting to match notes for next week. <laughs> worship, worship is personal, but it's not private. Worship is communal. <laughs> Worship is communal. Check this out. Even though it's personal and it is communal, it is not about you. It's not. It's not about you. Not about you. Listen to the final section that David writes. He says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Recognize what he's saying right there is that you are nothing without him. That's the case that he's making. David's saying, listen, you're, you're relatively unimportant in the grand scheme of things. That it's all about God. We are nothing without him. And check this out. Don't be offended by that. That's a good thing. I would rather have my hands, my life, in the care of the great I am than my own self. Because I've tried it alone. And every time I try it alone, I get it wrong. I'd rather be in the care of the great I am any day of the week. Verse 17, he says, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all bless the Lord oh you his angels you mighty ones who do his word obeying the voice of his word bless the Lord all the hosts his ministers who do his will bless the Lord all the works and all the places of his dominion bless the Lord oh my soul the focus of the first section is our personal response. 
The focus of the section section is our communal response. The purpose of the final section is the reason, it's the why we're responding. And that's because of the greatness of our God. In fact, man, when you talk about worship itself, here's literally what we say when we're worshiping. We're saying that something or someone is worth our adoration, honor, and glory. And the last time I checked, there is only one who is worth our adoration, our honor, and glory. There's only one. David here is calling him Yahweh. Yeah, he's our God, Jehovah God. He's, he's Jesus Christ. He's, there's only one who is worthy of worship when it comes to the reason why we gather. Only one. Yeah, he, and he does not live on Pennsylvania Avenue. There's only one. There's only one, and he does not preach in a pulpit on Sundays. There's, there's only one, and his name is Yahweh. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, who's seated up high and looks low. There's only one who is worthy of worship. It's the greatness and the majesty of our God, of our God. Worship, worship isn't about you, or even me for that matter. It's all about God. It's all about God. I had to think about this because, again, as we've been reflecting on this series, we started reflecting on why we got started, in the early days especially. And not only did we see, see um, the awkwardness of worship, but we also saw, man, week after week, almost like a protest, around 65 to 70 minutes of droves or masses, I'm exaggerating, but a, a pretty healthy group of people who would stand because we were going too long. And they would walk out in groups, leaving about 65, 70 minutes because Jesus only requires an hour out of you. <laughs> After an hour, you got to go because, you know, clearly you've been in the house too long. You got, you got other things going on. That's, that's idol, idol worship right there is what that is, by the way. And so I started thinking about, man, how I grew up. Man, I grew up, man, in the old, old, we called it Baptocostal church. Yeah, man. Here's how my day started. As a kid, man, we started off, Nika can testify to this, we started off 8.30 every Sunday. Early morning worship is what it was called. 8.30 every Sunday we started out, and after that, man, Sunday school started at 10 o'clock. Sunday school started at 10 o'clock, then after, after Sunday school at 10 o'clock, worship would begin at 11.30. Now, here's the part where I, we're a little bit different than many. Uh, worship started at 11.30, but every week we ended somewhere around the range of about 3 or 3.30. Yeah, and at least two times a month, there was another afternoon service that started around 4. Around 4 o'clock. So here's what we would do. We'd leave around before 3.30. We'd run around the corner to Kentucky Fried Chicken because Baptist folk love to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken after church. Um, we go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. We get a quick meal so we could be ready for the 4 o'clock service. And growing up, man, as kids, they could tell you, people used to always ask us, because even for the chocolate church, it was a little different than we was in church so long. And they would always ask us, how do y'all stay in church so long? And I'm going to be honest, we never had a good answer. Never had a good answer. 
I got a little bit older, now I got a little bit of perspective. And, and, and the answer is clear. We stayed in church that long because we weren't watching the clock. <laughs> we were focused on blessing him. And it didn't matter how long it took. The clock wasn't important. Lifting up our Savior was the most important thing. So whether that took one hour, two hours, three hours, four or more, it didn't matter because he was and is the focus of why we gather. Real quick, I am not now trying to sell you to stay in church for three hours. I know your mind's gone on pastors trying to get us to stay here long. That's not the point. The point is what I want you to understand is that the reason why we gather is not to be concerned about ourselves, our agenda, our schedule, what we got going on in our life. In fact, when you come in here, the proper response is to leave everything else at the door so that you can have an authentic encounter with our God. This is what David is arguing. Therefore, he ends his response with this as he puts it all together that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. What that means to you and I is that when we see events like yesterday as it transpired in Charlottesville, what we understand is that God's kingdom supersedes the foolishness, the nonsense, the hate that we experience in this world. So we come here week after week to acknowledge how great he is and that his mercy, his greatness extends above it all. And then David says, bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. That's you and I. He says also, finally, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The objective, brothers and sisters, how we can see change happening in our world and in our community is actually in us believing that God changes us when we connect to him in worship. That's what David is teaching us in his words. And I got numbers to prove my point because some of you are looking at me like you don't believe me. But check this out. Statistics say 95% of all people who receive salvation, it happens through a Sunday morning worship experience. 95% of the people who receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it happens through a Sunday morning worship experience. This is a big deal. So we say invite people to church, not because we want to see the church get massive and big, but because numbers don't lie, men lie, women lie, numbers don't lie, change happens when the saints of God gather in a space and they recognize that we are all sinners who need a Savior. For he knows our frame and he sees that we are dust. He knows who we are, yet he gathered us together and he saved our souls and we have new life. And we gather black, brown, yellow, red, and white, no matter who we are, recognizing that we are all the same person. We are people who are in need of a Savior. So we proclaim collectively that the Lord is great and we bless his name forever. Life change happens here, not here alone. I'm just trying to tell you there's something important 
about the Sunday morning worship experience. And when you leave the baggage outside the doors, and when you sit next to your brother and sister, no matter where they're from, no matter their socioeconomic status, when you sit next to them and you recognize, I may not look like you, but our hearts are the same. And we all need help. We all need help.